1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guest is Andrew S. Balich. Andrew is Associate Pastor of Preaching and Ministries at Westwood Alliance Church in Mansfield, Ohio. He co edited The Wholesome Doctrine of the Gospel, Faith and Love in the Writings of William Perkins, and he also co edited Volume 7 of the new edition of The Works of William Perkins. Andrew, it's great to have you on the show today, and congratulations on your book.
0: Many thanks. It's good to be here.
1: Before we start talking about William Perkins, can we talk a little bit about you? Can you tell us something about your background?
0: Sure. So I uh, grew up actually in Mansfield, Ohio, and uh, went to college uh, at Spring Arbor. University in Southern Michigan and, uh, studied history and theology there. I, I kind of developed a, a love for history and theology, uh, as a high school student. Actually, my, my father in law is a pastor and he is a huge fan of the Puritans. And so as I, uh, went to his shelf to, to pull a book off, uh, the first one I pulled off was actually the, uh, banner of truth abridged edition of John Owen's work on the atonement, uh, the death of death and the death of Christ. And so uh, that was my first as a, as a junior in high school, 17-year-old, uh, read that and uh, just just couldn't get it enough. And so continued to pursue that love of history and theology there at, at Spring Arbor. Uh, shortly after that, uh, went down to Southern Seminary, where I uh, did my Master of Divinity and continued an emphasis on, on history and theology, and uh, then c- continued on there at Southern Seminary to do a PhD, and decided to, to hone in on the Puritans, and uh, specifically William Perkins, of course. And so it was, uh, it was a delightful time. It was a way for me to, to wed both my love of history and theology, and to do that um, for, for the church. And, and so that's, that's a little bit about my academic trajectory. I will say I've been, uh, blessed by, by academic mentors, um, along the way. Uh, I had a, a history professor in, in college, uh, his name's Mark Carell, who really, uh, gave me a, a love for the history of ideas, which has not always been in vogue in the, in the history world in recent decades. And and then uh, my theology professor, Ken Brewer, who was the first one that really uh, – Saw some potential in me, uh, for, for academic studies and, and started to get me to think about, uh, maybe doctoral work. And then, um, David Puckett, uh, shepherded me through my, my MDiv process and encouraged me along the way. And then, uh, Sean Wright, uh, my, um, advisor for the PhD program was, uh, really instrumental in, in pointing me towards, uh, the The Reformation in England and the Puritans and, and specifically specifically William Perkins.
1: Great. Now, it's interesting that you framed uh, your biography in that way as a movement from a general interest in the Puritans to Perkins himself, because as you explain in the introduction to the book, The Gloss in the Text, William Perkins and Interpreting Scripture with Scripture, there's some doubt as to whether Perkins should be classed as a Puritan, isn't there? For, can you tell us what is Puritanism and who is Perkins, and why does he matter within that context?
0: Yeah, so the whole the whole idea of defining Puritanism, of course, is uh, much debated and continually debated by by those who are are in the field. But it, it, Puritan the term Puritan was a pejorative. Uh, kind of an insult in the 1500s and 1600s. And so, so we're looking back and trying to apply something that, that very few would, would claim for themselves, especially early on, um, in, in the 16th century where, where William Perkins, uh, in his context was. And so, uh, the way I think about it, there's three ways you can think about, about Puritanism. One is as an ecclesiastical movement that started in, you know, 1558 with, Elizabeth the first ascendancy and, and really the, the, the country of, of England becomes Protestant and you have the prayer book and there's pushing back against uh, the prayer book and those that are wanting to push back against the prayer book and um, want uh, both the, the doctrine and the practice to be reformed. Um, those are the ones who start to be uh, called the Puritans. And if we think about it in an ecclesiastical movement, those within the Church of England, of course, in 1662, the, the Great Ejection, um, is the end of those within the Church of England, um, Puritans as an ecclesiastical movement. You can also think of it as a political movement. Uh, there was lobbies with parliament, even, uh, MP representation for, um, Presbyterian sympathies in the eighties, uh, in the 1580s. And then, of course, the, the rise of, um, the, the Puritan political movement in force with uh, with the Civil War in the middle of the 17th century and the the Commonwealth period or interregnum I guess depending on your sympathies um, is is where the Puritans actually held political power and in that sense it would be also ending um, with the, with the fall of um, with the fall of that Commonwealth in in the early 1660s. So th- that's the way a lot of times Puritanism is described. Uh, the way I like to think about it uh, is more of a movement of piety. Um, and, and this is how I would categorize William Perkins as, as a Puritan is, if we think of Puritanism as a movement in piety, it's one that is uh, very much part of the Reformed tradition when it comes to their understanding of grace and, and salvation and it's also a movement of piety and then it's experiential and so the the puritans were not really uh interested in abstract notions or or theology that was not applied to life or lived out and so um they were were very much about application of their their doctrine uh, they would define theology as the science of living blessedly forever. And so if we think about Puritanism as a a um, a movement of piety, I, I think we can be more generous in who we include uh, someone like William Perkins, who really didn't chafe much uh, under the, the, the Church of England. In the prayer book requirements, uh, he's still considered and labeled the father of Puritanism. Why? Because he his theology and emphasis on applying that theology uh, really was the heartbeat of of those who many of who we would consider Puritans um, that were both contemporaries of him and and those that that came that came after.
1: Now, you explain in the book. There's been a little bit of of work on. Perkins of the last period but really historically there's only been a couple of monographs that were devoted to him. Um, what has been written about Perkins and um, could you tell us a little bit more about the new edition of his works that you've also been involved with?
0: Yeah so this um, this book that we're talking about right now came out of a, a PhD thesis. And as I started looking at the Puritans and looking at Perkins, it became clear there was a lot, a lot of people uh, tipped their hat, if you will, to his significance and his importance. Uh, But there really was very little done um, as far as. Um, As far as work directly on him, I mean, there was a number of articles and and, and things about his theology, very little done with his sermons and commentaries, which are the vast majority of what we have that survives from him. And so a couple of the books that have that were, and the one actually framed my um, argument here uh, was a book by Donald McKim who uh, wrote decades ago a book on William Perkins and the, the use of ramism uh, as a kind of philosophical or rhetorical um, uh, device that, that uses divisions. And, and he explained William Perkins and William, William Perkins' thought through this lens of, of ramism. And uh, while there's clearly ramism in, in uh, William Perkins' works, uh, what I argue in this book is that we, we can't think of Ramism as his hermeneutic, which is one of the things that uh, Donald McKim claimed. Really, his hermeneutic is what he tells us his hermeneutic is in his book, The Art of Prophesying. And uh, I'm sure we'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. And so there's that early work, that monograph um, on on William Perkins and his use of Ramism. And then actually, while I was doing my... My PhD studies um, there was another work that that came out, another monograph um, on basically defending um, William Perkins as a as a someone comfortable in in the Church of England and an apologist for the Church of England, kind of an intellectual biography, if you will, um, that that would push back on the idea that that William Perkins was uh, indeed uh, a Puritan and so there was those two monographs and then uh, a number of articles that really focus on his his theology uh, his doctrine of assurance his doctrine of uh, predestination um, a number of those things his preaching um, but but very little that had really plowed through his commentaries and his his sermons, which I said, if I have to put a number on, I'd say that's probably 50% plus of of what we have that survives um, from him and from from his pen.
1: Now You mentioned there uh, Andrew Perkins' little book called The Art of Prophesying. That, that raises the interesting question of what kind of book that is. What, what kinds of needs uh, or, or problems was Perkins trying to address when he prepared that book?
0: Yeah, The Art of Prophesying uh, was a preaching manual. Um, He he wrote it. It was originally in Latin in 1592 is when it was first published under the uh, title Prophetica. And so in Perkins' day, the university education uh whether at Oxford or at Cambridge, the two universities at the time, they 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 did training and it was a, a classical uh education, but they didn't train pastors to be preachers. They they trained orators, but not someone who would would be able to preach to your everyday layperson in the parish. And so what William Perkins saw as a need was to train people to be pastors to preach in what he would call the the plain style you, you don't want to have a lot of ornamentation in your preaching you don't want to use a lot of rhetorical devices you want to stay away from using latin phrases and greek terms you want to communicate in a way that your people can understand he believed that the word of god was powerful and drawing from 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17, he believed that all scripture was inspired and, um, and profitable if it was applied in a way that the people could understand and live. And so The Art of Prophesying is a preaching manual that begins with uh, hermeneutical principles and goes all the way through to delivery. And, and it, it really, um, filled a lacuna at the time. Uh, for for what was needed to, to actually train pastors to preach, not just to be uh, orators or rhetoricians. And so there really was this manual, and then outside of that, uh, the Puritan networks that were forming at this time, and especially as we go into the beginning of the 17th century, you had preaching manuals like Perkins. Perkins was pretty much the, the first, the earliest, and you had Puritan networks that would draw pastors and young men training to be pastors together for what they would call prophesying. And they would preach, and they would give each other feedback, and they would uh, discuss the sermons to try to sharpen each other and make, uh, make each other better. And so the art of prophesying was part of a, a larger effort to, to be an addition to um, the university education of, of his day.
1: Can you explain why he refers to preaching as prophesying?
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting to uh, to modern modern ears, but he would think see um, he would see the preacher as the herald- heralders of God's word. And so, just like the prophets in the Old Testament that were were speaking God's words on behalf of the God, of God, just as the apostles were um, giving us revelation as they preached, for instance, in the, Peter's. Um, sermon at Pentecost, it wasn't that God was giving new revelation in preachers in Perkins' mind, but the revelation that was closed in the canon of Scripture when it was rightly divided, when it was preached faithfully, uh, it was the very Word of God. And so in that sense, um, the preacher is is prophesying, if you will.
1: And, and so I suppose underneath that, conception, that very high conception of preaching or the office of preacher, Uh, there is a a structure, a hermeneutical structure that tries to make sense of the biblical text. How does does Perkins' thinking about pulpit communication reflect the way in which he thinks the Bible should be read?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, William Perkins would be of a mind, I can't quote him on this, uh, but but the, his whole idea of plain style, when you read his art of prophesying, the, the, the simple hermeneutical principle of Scripture interpreting itself and not needing uh, a university education in order to rightly read it, um, I think that as William Perkins was um, preaching, he was trying to teach his hearers how to read Scripture. He was modeling how one would read and interpret Scripture, and and my you know, the main thesis of the book focuses on his hermeneutical principles, um, which uh, he would say that Scripture interprets itself. In, in three ways. Uh, there's context, there's collation, and there's the analogy of faith. Context is the heavy lifting of interpretation. What are the words mean in relation to the other words and the genre of the writing and, and the overall argument of the Apostle Paul in Galatians, for instance? Um, that's where the heavy list, lifting of interpretation goes. But what happens when you come to a, an opaque passage of Scripture, a passage of Scripture that's hard to understand, that doesn't make sense on face value? Well, at that point, you have collation as well. So because there's one divine author of all of Scripture, um, Scripture cannot contradict itself. And so there are clear passages of Scripture that are found elsewhere in the canon that can shed light on the difficult passage that you're trying to understand. And so you understand first uh, the the message of the text in context. Then you have the rest of the canon that sheds light on that passage of, of Scripture. And then the analogy of faith is essentially – uh, guardrails, if you will. The analogy of faith is the most clear passages of Scripture. Things, things that are determined and part of the Christian faith. The Apostles' Creed, if you will. Uh, things about the two natures of Christ, of the Trinity. When, when the Bible talks about something that appears to contradict. Christ's divinity, if you will. Well, we know that it can't mean that because we know Christ is divine as part of the analogy of, of faith. And so that's the hermeneutical side. And you see that in his preaching, because the way he describes preaching, there's three movements. You, you just, you interpret the text or exposit, explain the text. And that's where he's doing this, these hermeneutical moves. And you see that in his preaching. And then he'll move to doctrine. He says once you've done your explanation of the text, then you pull out several doctrines. Not every doctrine you could, but you pull out the doctrines that are most necessary and most applicable to the lives of your people. And as you clearly state what those doctrines are, then you move to the third movement of preaching, which is application. And he has a, a fascinating chapter on or chapters on application in the art of prophesying. He, he's the earliest, at least uh, in, in, in to my knowledge, um, writing in England that really wants you to think about application specifically. And so he'll use 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17 and the whole idea of teaching and per- reproof correction, training and righteousness, and he'll it from that types of application, and then he'll he'll give you seven different types of hearers that might be in the church that morning or in the parish, and with those overlapping 7 and and 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he's trying to force the preacher to think very specifically about the people that are listening and where they are, what they're struggling with, what they need, how they need to live. And so in that way, he's modeling for his hearers how to interpret the text, how to pull sound doctrine out, and how to apply that doctrine to everyday life.
1: Now, the book does a great job, Andrew, showing how Perkins uses that method uh, in various locations and various genres of his own writing and also in the reading of biblical texts. But in addition to that kind of deep dive approach to any given passage, you also emphasize in the book that Perkins recommends that the Bible be read, or the biblical material be read in a certain sequence. So, start with John, move to Romans, move to Psalms, move to Isaiah, and so on. Why does Perkins recommend that kind of sequential movement through the canon? In addition to this um, almost segmented way of reading individual pericope or passages?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that his, uh, his, his recommendation on order uh, does um, reveal his some of his theological priorities and commitments, right? And so he is very much a Protestant. He is uh, very much part of the Reformed tradition. Uh, internationally speaking. And uh, like many of the reformed um, theologians of his day, he's going to be writing against, uh, in his polemics, against uh, the Church of Rome. And you find that not just in his explicit polemics, but throughout his preaching and other writings as well. And so I think that he for instance, recommends Romans first because he sees foundational Protestant emphases in Romans um, that need to be uh, grasped and need to be um, firmly held on to, if you will, as you go in, and read other passages of, of Scripture.
1: Now, can you, can you mention a little bit, Andrew, about the relationship between his writing and preaching? how does one follow one from
0: the other yeah so that the whole genre question with perkins is is a difficult one um, because we have his his treatises that he actually wrote many of them in, the, in latin that were were translated some some of them translated during his lifetime um those are are very explicitly um, and clearly him and and his work and in work that he vetted and and promoted himself. And his preaching um was what he spent most of his time doing, and that's the massive amount of material that we have. And much of his preaching was recorded by others or expanded from his notes, and much of those were, uh, published during his his lifetime, so we th- we believe that they are reliable. Um, but many of the treatises, especially treatises in uh, that he has on practical works, when it comes to uh, assurance and it comes to uh, vocation and the household and and how to live well and how to die well, you know those those short works were pulled together from his sermons. And so there is this fluidity between what he did uh, as far as oral discourse from the pulpit and you move kind of as a spectrum from there to what he actually penned. And so uh, what I would say about that, though, whether it is a sermon um, that is was delivered and recorded or a treatise on predestination. What I try to argue in the book is what he's doing in that whole spectrum is very clearly biblical interpretation. Even in his theological treatises, he will start with a text. And he will begin the treatise with an interpretation of that text and then extrapolate on on from there. Does that answer
1: your question? It certainly does, yeah. Now, the, the, the structure of the book uh, focuses really on the way in which Perkins advances biblical exegesis in commentaries, in the practical works that he penned, in some of his more theological works, and in some of his polemical works. So as you surveyed the whole of Perkins' corpus – what kinds of similarities and differences did you discover between the way in which he approached each of these different genres
0: yeah so like because of the just previous comments the you'll you'll have um, Exposition, doctrine, and application that you see from his preaching method really in many of, many of these works. And so there is various, uh, different flavors depending on, on where you are, of course, too. You'll have regular, uh, exposition, application, and, or doctrine and then application in the commentaries and in his sermons. And as you move to, His practical works, uh, for instance, um, you'll have those similar emphases. So how does one live well is one of one of his practical treatises. And he starts out with the passage of Habakkuk of living well is living by faith. And he will explain that text. Uh, briefly, and then he will move on to extrapolate from there uh, more broadly what it means to to live to live well, and then when you move to his theological works, um, he has works on cate uh, works of catechism. His his own catechism was uh, entitled "The Foundation of Christian Religion," and then he wrote a catechism on the Lord's Prayer, and then also the Apostles' Creed. And for instance, the Apostles' Creed um i think is one of the closest things that he comes to as far as a systematic theology because he goes through every line and word of the apostles creed and explains it and as he does that he's drawing in scripture to support it expounding it and he even in his his catechetical works is moving to application and so this this piety movement of not letting it just be theology or abstract notions, but it needs to be lived out, you see, um, really throughout his works. Even his works on the sovereignty of God and salvation, that's what uh, Perkins is somewhat infamous for, the golden chain. You see the the bubbles on the, the Rammus chart, and he was a superlapsarianism, uh, superlapsarian. And there is uh, very clearly are you still there? I am. Yes. Okay. My uh, sorry. Um, there's there's very clearly application in in that part as as well, and so there's there's much more similarity as you move through the different genres of his works uh, than than there is difference.
1: Were there any surprises when you came to the writing of this book?
0: Yeah, so there are there were definitely some works that were uh one one surprise was how consistent he was. I I was I was hoping uh I guess just for uh interest's sake that maybe he'd be a little bit less consistent in his method um but he's extremely consistent and that was uh, a little bit of of a surprise when you think about his consistency across all of of the genres uh that said there there were several places where he he was not and um one of those he wrote a a harmony of um and, and some of it's just genre. So he wrote a, a harmony of the Bible and he starts, he even dates creation, um, back to, uh, I, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I, it's, I believe it's 4004 BC was creation. And then he goes the timeline all the way up and he even puts the dates of, um, of the the eschaton on on the calendar as well, some of those, and so when when you come to his his dating in that harmony um he's he's not he's moved beyond what he does consistently in the rest of his works and as uh as a spin off of that his his eschatology is uh, because he's trying to apply the the passages about the the end of time and the consummation to his current context. He's no longer really interpreting Scripture with Scripture according to his hermeneutical method. And then he also did an academic treatise called The The Problem of Forged Catholicism, where he goes through and he uh, basically debunks um, uh, a lot of what the Roman Catholic Church of his time would say were supporting documents from the early church. And so it's basically going through and categorizing um, what's reliable, what's not reliable, what's genuine, what's not genuine from the patristic and into uh, the medieval period. And so those were some interesting areas that I, I did not have time in this book to explore, but but hope uh, maybe someday to, to to explore more.
1: And it was really interesting to see your discussion in one of your footnotes, about his eschatology, which you thought paralleled or um bridged amillennialism and premillennialism?
0: Yeah so yeah, that was interesting. Uh, he he seems to um, there there seems to be this uh, this kind of hybrid uh, because he dates. Uh, the millennium starting actually he, he he's he's all millennial in the sense that he thinks the the millennium is it, that he was living in the millennium because he saw um, it start in um, uh, around the time of uh, of of Constantine uh, and in the centuries following that. But then he also talks about the incoming of, of the Jews, for instance. And, and so there's these, there's these elements of both. And, and I don't know. He, he never wrote a, a systematic work on eschatology, so it's hard to know because you're pulling from different places. But, but he seems to be uh, uh, straddling a couple of different views, at least how those views are articulated today.
1: Hmm. Well, Andrew, we've taken up a lot of your time today talking about this really important new book, The Gloss and the text. William Perkins and Interpreting Scripture with Scripture, just published by Lexham. But before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment?
0: Yeah, so I was just able uh, to sign a contract with Lexham for their um, their series called Lived Theology, and so I'll be working on a a shorter book uh, on Thomas Goodwin and his theology of assurance. And so Thomas Goodwin was uh, an early proponent of this uh, concept of sealing of the spirit um kind of a second work of the spirit that brings about uh an ecstatic experience of assurance and it's fascinating how that uh largely won the day in puritanism later in the 17th century and more of the understanding of assurance that you'd find in William Perkins and the earlier puritans survived in in very few of the later puritans John Owen uh, being being one of them. and so looking at that sealing of the spirit in in the works of Thomas Goodwin and and kind of the influences and legacy of that uh, maybe even up to up to today.
1: Well, that sounds fascinating and hopefully you can come back in the program and talk about that Andrew.
0: It would be a privilege. It's been a privilege today, Crawford. I thank you.
1: Well, thank you for your time and take care. And thanks to everybody else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.